The following is a list of reasons why Russian-American anarchist Emma Goldman was arrested between 1893 and 1919. Incitement to riot. Open-air speaking. Inciting the assassination of President McKinley. Being a suspicious person. Incendiary articles. Incitement to riot. Publicly expressing incendiary sentiments. Attempting to speak. Planning to speak. Speaking. Conspiracy against the government. Existing in the city of San Diego. Telling people how to use birth control. Conspiracy to violate the Draft Act. And finally in 1919, questionable immigration status. Hello, and welcome to Daring Descent, where we uplift stories of remarkable resistance throughout history. I'm your host, historian and teacher Jeff DeMoss. Today's episode is another installment in our Pride Month miniseries on American LGBTQ icons. Today's subject is anarchist Emma Goldman. The turn of the 20th century, Goldman tirelessly advocated for anarchy, feminism, free speech, and just about any position that angered the establishment. Part of her story, which is why she's included in this series, is that she was one of the first American activists to publicly defend homosexuality, and she advocated for free love six decades before hippies. A little disclaimer, this episode will have some infrequent references to sex. Red Emma was called the most dangerous woman in America by future FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, and she was never afraid to back down even when they tried to stop her at every step of the way. She said, The more opposition I encountered, the more I was in my element. Let's do it. Emma Goldman was born in Lithuania, which was part of the Russian Empire all the way back in 1869, and she's ethnically Russian and Jewish. She grew up in St. Petersburg, and the Russian state at this time is really quite repressive, and the smallest dissent would get you imprisoned. An equally despotic father ruled over her house. Abraham Goldman had a violent temper, most often taken out on Emma with a whip. He had a long string of failed businesses, and she described her childhood as leading her down a path where she lived her entire life, quote, largely in revolt. Her dad said, All a Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare gefilte fish, cut noodles fine, and give the man plenty of children. So her defaults of resistance came first from resisting her father and then grew from there. Emma loved school, but hated many of her teachers. Some would hit her with a ruler, another tried to molest the girls at her school, others verbally harassed the students, and so she passed the exam to go to secondary school, but she couldn't get the character reference from her primary school teachers in order to be able to go. In fact, her religion teacher said she was a terrible child who would grow into a worse woman. What kind of freaking teacher says that? What the heck? So her formal education stopped at age 12, and at 13, she was working in a glove factory. Despite some terrible teachers, she's going to have this love of reading. And in her teenage years, she's reading some of the same literature that future Russian revolutionaries like Vladimir Lenin himself were reading at the time. She's going to be really heavily influenced by the early Russian revolutionary movement, which is focused on equality, fighting for the common man, and overthrowing the Tsar and his repression. When Emma's 12, Tsar Alexander II is assassinated. Now, this is still decades before the Russian Revolution, but this gives you an understanding of the political tumult that's happening 
in Russia at the time. And rumors start to spread that it was Jewish radicals that killed him. And this leads to these horrifying pogroms, these mass attacks on Jewish communities in Russia. And she and her family need to get out. And so at the age of 16, Emma and her family are going to come to the United States. And the U.S. would become the place that she comes to love and view as home. She's going to hop on a boat to New York City with her sisters, Helena and Lena. The way that she described the first sight of her new home was like this. Helena and I stood pressed to each other, enraptured by the sight of the harbor and the Statue of Liberty suddenly emerging from the mist. Ah, there she was, the symbol of hope, of freedom, of opportunity. She held her torch to light the way to the free country, the asylum for the oppressed of all lands. We too, Helena and I, would find a place in the generous heart of America. Our spirits were high, our eyes filled with tears. Emma finds a job working in an overcoat factory in Rochester, New York. She works 10-hour days for $2.50 a week, which is $75 a week in today's money. She's going to marry one of her co-workers at the age of 17, and it doesn't go great. She left and divorced him within months of the wedding, but hey, she becomes a U.S. citizen. She later reflected that at this moment, If I ever love a man again, I will give myself to him without being bound by the rabbi or the law, and when that love dies, I will leave without permission. On May 4th, 1886... A 17-year-old Emma is going to read in the papers about this event that's going to set her down this path of radical political activism. These labor and other radical activists gathered in Chicago's Haymarket Square. They're there protesting police's brutal treatment of striking workers the day before this. It was a relatively peaceful demonstration, and then the police tried to stop and disperse the meeting. And people did start to disperse until a bomb is thrown into the crowd of policemen. Chaos ensues, police open fire. This is called the Haymarket Riot or the Haymarket Uprising. Seven cops are killed, 60 are injured, and there's lots of civilian casualties as well. Eight anarchist labor activists are going to be falsely accused of starting this riot in Chicago, and seven of them get sentenced to death. One of them, a guy by the name of August Spies, his last words from the gallows were, The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. And that optimism that we saw Goldman have when she was coming over and seeing New York Harbor, after the Haymarket affair, she's going to say the United States had proved most disappointing, and she's appalled at this event. And it becomes the core catalyst of her political awakening. She said she had an epiphany. On the day of the hanging, she said that she had felt thrust into a stupor, a feeling of numbness, too strong for tears. A relative in her house was weirded out by Emma's sadness at this faraway event and expressed confusion why this 17-year-old was lamenting the death of a bunch of murderers. And Emma leaps at her throat. Another person says that she's gone crazy and she throws a pitcher of water at her face and threatens to kill her. At the age of 20, Emma is going to head to New York City's Greenwich Village. She's going to be joining other daring dissenters like her contemporary Nellie Bly and future revolutionary Marsha P. Johnson as they all sought their versions of the American dream on the island of Manhattan. She's going to wind up working in a corset factory. As this young woman experiencing the trials and horrifying conditions of working in a factory at the turn of the 20th century in the U.S., she's going to join the German-American anarchist movement. 
There's this guy by the name of Johann Most, who's the editor of the German-language radical newspaper Freiheit, which means freedom. And he's this amazing orator, and he's going to take Emma under his wings and tutor her in the way of public speaking. And the way that she describes it is that Johann is the one who gives her her voice. This is also the time that she's going to meet probably the single most important person in her life, a guy by the name of Alexander Berkman, better known as Sasha. And he is born in Lithuania a year after Emma, and so they're from the exact same place. And he's a professional typesetter by trade and is going to be really heavily involved in politics when Emma meets him. They're going to share an apartment together along with illustrator Modest Stein and fellow anarchist activists Helene and Anna Minkin. Sasha Berkman is going to be Goldman's on and off again lover, certainly a lifelong friend. In fact, it very much seems like Goldman had love affairs with many of the revolutionary men she was closest with over the years. She's never going to be living a life of monogamy, which we'll talk about later on, and is going to be very open and free in her sexuality and her different partners. A popular story from these days, it's perhaps slightly exaggerated or paraphrased, but it's maybe the most famous story about Emma Goldman, was that she was at a party with some other anarchists, and her wild dancing made a more reserved party-goer uncomfortable. So she supposedly told him, If I can't dance, I'm not coming to your revolution. Now this certainly smells like a tall tale, but it exemplifies the truth that Goldman was not satisfied with living the life of a revolutionary who devoted every fiber of her being to soulless political action. She wanted to love, to experience great art, to pursue joy. And so after meeting some of these other anarchists, she can now firmly call herself an anarchist. And so let's try to break down what the heck anarchism even is, since it's kind of the central political ideology and philosophy that Goldman follows. I think the popular conception of what anarchy is in people's minds is just this really undeveloped, naive um, kind of idea that's vaguely around the lines of, you know, some terrorists slashing and burning, then calling for a free for all. The reality is, is that anarchism as an ideology is this highly developed and nuanced political thought. So let's try to unpack this. According to Goldman, she put it this way, everyone is an anarchist who loves liberty and hates oppression. So what do anarchists believe in? They believe in a rejection of government as the possible solution to society's problems. They believe in a deep embrace of personal freedoms. Emma said, I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. It's typically anti-religious. Here's Goldman in one of the very few interviews that exists of her in her life explaining anarchism. Anarchism, a social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. So there is this global anarchist movement at the turn of the 20th century, which impacts a ton of different major global events at this time. And typically anarchists are radicals on the left side of the political spectrum. Emma's drawn to some of the ideas of the socialist movement, but finds much of their plans to be uninspiring. Biographer Vivian Gornick described the anarchists of the era as believing that one must strike hard and fast and with the single-minded intention of destroying the state so thoroughly that it could never rise again. And so anarchism in the U.S. was largely an immigrant movement, and Goldman was trying to bring the philosophy to a mainstream English-speaking audience. 
she's regularly railed against anti-immigrant nativism in the country because that's it's gonna be really tied in with anarchy and obviously as herself a russian jewish immigrant she cares deeply about the huge rise in anti-immigrant sentiment in the u.s at this time in a speech she gave one time talking about american hatred of foreigners here's what she had to say well friends if the americans are to wait until americans wake up the country They'll have to resurrect the Indians who were killed in America and upon whose bodies this so-called democracy was established. Because every other American, if you scratch them, you'll find them to be an Englishman, Dutchman, Frenchman, Spaniard, a Jew, and a German, and 101 other nationalities who sent their young men and their women to the country in the foolish belief that liberty was awaiting them at the American harbor, liberty holding a torch. A little bit of a different take than we saw from her when she's first on that boat at the age of 16. In 1890... Goldman's going to do her first ever public lecture tour. She's an orator, first and foremost. That's probably her biggest contribution to the anarchy movement. And she's going to do a tour of Cleveland, Rochester, Buffalo, Baltimore. And Johann Most is essentially sending her out as his sub. And he writes this speech for her. No one has any idea who Emma Goldman is at this time. And she gets sent back to her town that she first settled in in the U.S., Rochester. And her speech is focused on the limitations of the eight-hour workday movement. You know, essentially, there was this huge part of the labor movement that was trying to say we need to cut down hours, and they focused on this number of an eight-hour workday. And the speech was kind of like, hey, workers, you're setting the bar too low. Demand revolution. Eight hours shouldn't just be good enough. She's still at this time largely speaking in German. She wouldn't master English for a few more years. And right before she went to go read Mo's speech, because she's just subbing in for him, she panics and scraps his speech. She put it this way. In a flash, I saw it. Every incident of my three years in Rochester, the factory, its drudgery and humiliation, the failure of my marriage, the Chicago crime, the last words of August spies, I began to speak. Words I'd never heard myself utter came pouring forth faster and faster. They came with passionate intensity. They painted images. The audience had vanished. The hall itself had disappeared. I was conscious only of my own words, of my ecstatic song. The working men in the audience burst into uproarious applause. She said she wept with the joy of knowing. It wasn't until a worker asked her in front of everyone, but what about the eight-hour day, that she realized she forgot to address the advertised lecture topic. So, you know, some work certainly needed to be done to refine her public speaking skills, persona, and message. But she's on the path now. When Emma returns back from this exhilarating speaking tour, Most invites her out to dinner, but isn't interested in hearing about the speeches. He just wants to profess his love for her. She calls him out on his BS, and they get in this huge fight. Goldman, along with Sasha Berkman and illustrator Mata Stein, are going to move to Worcester, Massachusetts, the birthplace of Abby Hoffman, by the way. And while they're there, they open up an ice cream parlor. I, I just... The idea of three anarchists opening up an ice cream parlor in Worcester, Mass, brings me a lot of joy. I have no further information about it, but I just needed you to know that little tidbit. And they actually are going to close up their shop in response to the Homestead Steel Strike. At least nine strikers and three Pinkerton agents are going to get killed during this strike uh, at Homestead Steel. And if you remember, the Pinkertons were the more famous version of the Baldwin-Feltz Agency that we learned about during the Battle of Blair Mountain episode. And so this Homestead Steel Strike really, really, really captures the attention of Berkman and Goldman. 
And in 1892, Berkman and Goldman are going to sit down and they are going to plan out an assassination attempt on Henry Clay Frick, who was a steel robber baron who treated the Homestead steel strikers like crap. And he's Andrew Carnegie's steel manager. The idea of anarchists, in this case, Berkman and Goldman, is they thought that killing Frick would ignite a revolution, like a Russian revolutionary style movement in the United States. You got so many pissed off workers in this country that are being treated terribly let's center our our efforts on this really oppressive steel manager and let's kill him so emma tries to get money for uh, assassination supplies like a weapon a ticket to pittsburgh by trying to sell her body her first night out trying to do this is so awkward that a man took her into a saloon, bought her a beer, gave her 10 bucks, and told her she wasn't cut out to be a prostitute. Her sister eventually sends her the money, and Berkman is going to shoot Frick three times, stab him in the leg, and fail to kill him. This terrible attempt at assassination did not lead to a workers' revolution, and Goldman is going to go into hiding. She's not charged, but she's suspected of being complicit, and the press starts calling her the queen of the anarchists, and her closest friend and confidant is going to go to prison for the next 14 years for this failed assassination attempt. A year later, the stock market crashes. There's a series of financial disasters, and the U.S. Treasury goes bankrupt. Goldman's going to lead a march to Union Square in New York City. She's going to give her speech from an overturned packing box to a crowd of 5,000 mostly working class women. Men and women, do you not realize that the state is the worst enemy you have? It is a machine that crushes you in order to sustain the ruling class, your masters. It is the pillar of capitalism. It is ridiculous to expect any redress from it. Wake up. Become daring enough to demand your rights. Demonstrate before the palaces of the rich. Demand work. If they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take bread. It is your sacred right. For this speech, the press is going to start dubbing her Red Emma. One paper said, Her vitriolic tongue is just what the ignorant mob needs to tear down New York. But they print every word of her speech. She's going to get arrested. She's arrested for speaking her mind. I'm sure you could figure that out from that list that I gave you at the start of the episode. And she becomes this staunch defender of free speech. At the time, she expressed shock that a country which guaranteed free speech, officers armed with long clubs, should invade an orderly assembly. By the way, you're going to hear me use a lot of her own words in this episode because I find them to be incredibly powerful. But there appears to be very little surviving audio from her. I'm going to toss in a few clips from an interview she did later in life. So here's her from that interview talking about an attempt to censor her. Ms. Goldman, should the government here object to your speeches of anarchism, would you change them or leave the country? I will leave the country rather than deny my ideas. I prefer to stick to my guns. She's found guilty of inciting a riot, and she gets one year on Blackwell's Island. Does that sound familiar to you? She was sent to the penitentiary on Blackwell's rather than the insane asylum, the one Nellie Bly went undercover at. And in 1893, 
Nellie Bly, the most famous reporter for the New York world, is going to be sent to go interview Emma Goldman while she's in prison. Goldman at this point has learned English while she's incarcerated, and Bly's article is awesome. She scoffs at a need first to introduce Goldman to her readers. You've read of her as a property-destroying, capitalist-killing, riot-promoting agitator. You see her in your mind, a great raw-boned creature with short hair and bloomers, a red flag in one hand, a burning torch in the other, both feet constantly off the ground, and murder constantly on her lips. By the end of the two-hour interview in which they discuss capitalism, anarchism, sexual love, personal freedom, buying books instead of clothes... Bly, unsurprisingly, loves her and declares her a modern Joan of Arc. When Emma gets out at the age of 25, the press is waiting for her outside the prison gate. Emma, Emma, what's next? Society is in its last convulsions. Men cannot be happy as long as they are slaves. They cannot expect theft, murder, prostitution, or oppression to be gotten rid of unless the system which breeds them is gone. For this, I shall continue to work. My motto as ever is death to tyranny. Viva la anarchy. Keep in mind that she just got out of prison serving a sentence for saying that. Her account of prison life is published in the New York world the next day. Goldman has a brief stint studying midwifery and nursing in Vienna, and she comes back to the States in 1898 to go on this 12-state, 18-city speaking tour, 66 different meetings. Future ACLU founder Roger Baldwin was fresh out of Harvard when he heard Goldman speak on this tour. It was the eye-opener of my life. Never before had I heard such social passion, such courageous exposure of basic evils, such electric power behind words, such a sweeping challenge to all values I'd been taught to hold highest. From that day forth, I was her admirer. Another admirer of Goldman's is going to hear her speak in 1901 in Cleveland. A guy by the name of Leon Shalgosh. And he's an anarchist. And he doesn't know Emma Goldman, but he was inspired, supposedly, by one of her speeches. And he's going to go on to kill the U.S. president, William McKinley. When he's interviewed after he's arrested, he's going to say that the last public speaker he heard was Goldman. I read the speech that she gave in Cleveland, and it was pretty standard anarchist fare. Certainly no direct mentions of McKinley, nothing that should have gotten her in trouble here. Goldman is going to come to Shalgash's defense after the fact. As an anarchist, I'm opposed to violence. But if the people want to do away with assassins, they must do away with the conditions which produce murderers. Whew, she is certainly not afraid to, to speak her mind in really turbulent times. It's pretty typical for her to oppose violence on paper, but then somewhat justify acts of violence that were committed by shifting the blame to the conditions, typically the fault of the state, that enabled that violence to happen. Here's a, a 1909 Harlem speech she gave. Isn't it stupid to be afraid of violence when you are in the midst of it all the time? Anarchists don't propagate violence. They only struggle against what already exists, and it is necessary to fight existing violence with violence. That is the only way that a new peace can dawn. So, you know, a warrant gets issued for her arrest for some level of connection to this assassination. She turns herself in. In the Chicago Tribune front page, here's the, the headline from the story on her arrest. Emma Goldman, in law's grasp. High priestess of anarchy found hiding in Chicago. 
faces officers calmly. Admits she met the would-be assassin here on July 12th, but denies she has seen him since. Reiterates that violence is not her creed, and declares, McKinley is too insignificant a man to kill. When she turns herself in, she's going to be pretty intensely interrogated. She's going to tell reporters, if they want to keep this up, why, let them go ahead. They are making anarchists by the dozen. They will save me much work. She's going to be initially denied bail, then it's set at $20,000, and she's actually never charged with a crime. It's quite confusing how bail is set that high without even being charged. Not exactly a time of great liberties in the U.S. here, huh? She's going to spend two weeks in jail, and she gets released on lack of evidence, and Shalgash is executed. McKinley's assassination made anarchism a reviled ideology in the United States, and so Goldman is going to be on the defensive. After this, in 1903, Congress is going to pass the Immigration Act that explicitly bars anarchists from coming to the U.S., and Goldman's going to have to go underground for a year or so to avoid the intense public scrutiny against her. She's going to use the pseudonym Miss E.G. Smith for a little while before unapologetically returning to the lecture circuit. So this is when Emma becomes really famous. She's going to go on these lecture tours across the United States, and her speaking style and wit was legendary. When she'd give these speeches, she'd make these biting critiques of the hypocrisy of American government and society, always tossing in clever quips that made the audience roar with laughter. Here's just a sampling of some of the lecture titles that she would have on her advertisements from this era. Tolstoy, Artist and Anarchist. Marriage and Love. Danger and the Growing Power of the Church. Anarchism versus Socialism. Jealousy, Its Cause and Possible Cure. The birth control, why and how small families are desirable. The relation of anarchism to trade unionism. Direct action as the logical tactics of anarchism. Women under anarchism. The sham of culture. The misconceptions of free love. The intermediate sex, a discussion of homosexuality. Variety or monogamy. Which? Ah, I want to hear recordings of her speak so bad. I would go to every talk that she gave. Whether you agree with every stance that she's going to have, certainly these are some fascinating topics that I would want to hear about. In Portland, you could head to the Scandinavian Socialist Hall on 4th and Yamhill and see each lecture for 25 cents each or get a special discount if you subscribe to her magazine. One San Francisco reporter demanded that his readers drop everything and go listen to her speak. He said... Had she lived a century ago, she'd have been beheaded. Two centuries ago, given over to the loving embrace of the Iron Maiden. Well, in the 16th century, nicely boiled in oil. She has life, she has courage, she has brains. She is fiercely consistent, unwaveringly true. And though I can't agree with her, I believe her to be absolutely sincere. One time in Philadelphia, she thought the cops were likely to arrest her based off the lecture topic of that evening, so she chained herself to the podium before the speech. But, um, the cops didn't show up that time. They certainly show up lots of other times. By the time we hit 1917, U.S. Attorney General Caffey will say, Emma Goldman is a woman of great ability and of personal magnetism, and her persuasive powers make her an exceedingly dangerous woman. That magazine of hers that I mentioned before is called Mother Earth, and it's her anarchist politics and literature magazine that ran from 1906 to 1917. It would have anarchist or radical writings about current events. It would have poetry and fiction. 
and she said the magazine would voice without fear every unpopular cause. Sasha Berkman is the editor. He's released from prison. He's going to serve 14 of his 22 years that he's sentenced to, and he's released the same year the magazine comes out. Costs a dime, and the Postal Service and other government agencies are constantly harassing them as they deem the publication treasonous and try to prevent its distribution across the country. You can see how Goldman becomes a free speech advocate. In 1912, some International Workers of the World members, radical socialist organization, are arrested in San Diego for protesting in the streets, breaking this local ordinance. The fire department comes in and sprays everyone with fire hoses. Goldman and fellow anarchist-slash-lover Ben Reitman show up to support the IWW. Reitman is Goldman's off-and-on lover, tour manager, and himself an activist. There's quite a few of these men that shuffle in and out of her life. And 2,000 people show up to protest Goldman and Reitman outside their hotel. In fact, Reitman gets kidnapped by protesters. He gets tarred and sagebrushed, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. The IWW is burned into his skin with a cigar. The letters are burned into his skin, and they force him to sing the national anthem and kiss the flag. So there's some pretty serious pushback, obviously, to Goldman and the people around her for their activism. It's dangerous stuff. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to explore Emma's activism and the Fed's attempts to finally take her down. Let's dive a little bit deeper into some of the causes embraced by Goldman. Goldman is going to develop a popular resurgence during the second wave of feminism in the 1970s. Everyone was naming things after Emma Goldman, health collectives, dogs, even babies. If I can't dance, I don't want to be in your revolution was printed on t-shirts bearing her face. So let's explore her connection to feminism. In 1915-1916, she and Reitman are arrested and fined multiple times for speaking about and distributing literature on birth control. It was mainly instructions for how to use it, and this was years before Margaret Sanger began her public campaign for birth control. She actually mentors and brings Sanger into the fight against the censorious Comstock laws, which were these series of anti-obscenity and censorship laws starting in 1873, and they criminalize birth control as obscene and illicit. So you can't even talk about it, certainly not distribute any info about it. Reitman is actually going to serve what was at the time the longest sentence in U.S. history for advocating for birth control, which is six months. Goldman is going to smuggle contraceptive devices into the U.S. from France, so she's not just about talking. like She's directly participating in these movements that she cares about. Another New York City contemporary of Goldman is Mabel Pinghua Lee, who's, as one of her crusades, fighting for women's suffrage. Interestingly, Goldman is actually really critical of the women's suffrage and emancipation movement for being too narrow. She envisioned a future where women did not just seek out freedom to choose some low-paying profession, but one in which they could have complete freedom in both their personal and professional lives. And she's directly critical of women trying to get the right to vote. She wrote this essay called The Tragedy of Women's Emancipation. The right to vote, or equal civil rights, may be good demands, but true emancipation begins neither at the polls nor in the courts. It begins in a woman's soul. 
History tells us that every oppressed class gained true liberation from its masters through its own efforts. It is necessary that woman learn that lesson, that she realize that her freedom will reach as far as her power to achieve her freedom reaches. It is therefore far more important for her to begin with her inner regeneration, to cut loose from the weight of prejudices, traditions, and customs. The demand for equal rights in every vocation of life is just and fair. But, after all, the most vital right is the right to love and be loved. It's hard to fault a radical revolutionary for thinking the vote is not the answer to women's problems. Historian Stephen Cole put it this way, It's not that she didn't endorse the suffrage movement, she just didn't think it was important. Why would women want to be equal to unfree men? Another big crusade of Goldman was the free love movement. She said the most vital right is the right to love and be loved. This focused on removing legal boundaries that constrained people's love lives. And this all jives with her anarchist views. Monogamous, possessive relationships don't make sense to an anarchist, and her love life certainly points to her embracing elements of free love. She said, I was married when I was scarcely 17. I suffered. Let me say no more about that. I believe in the marriage of affection. That is the only true marriage. If two people care for each other, they have a right to live together so long as that love exists. When it is dead, what base immorality for them still to keep together? Oh, I tell you, the marriage ceremony is a terrible thing. Understandably, Goldman struggled to personally embrace every tenet of free love in her personal life. She frequently expressed frustration with herself for feelings of jealousy over a partner's love circumstances or a desire for the personal security of monogamy. Goldman is one of the first public figures in America to openly defend homosexuality, and she does so in a bunch of her lectures. She said, to me, anarchism was not a mere theory for a distant future. It was a living influence to free us from inhibitions, internal, no less than external, and from the destructive barriers that separate man from man. And this is going to piss off many within the anarchist movement who thought they had enough PR problems without taking up this cause. And Goldman said this just made her sure of myself, more determined to plead for every victim, be it one of social wrong or of moral prejudice. People would come up to her after lectures and constantly tell her of the personal discrimination that they had faced. And in fact, you know, many Russian revolutionaries espoused homophobia, and Goldman and Sasha Berkman saw the potential for the revolution to be both about economic and sexual freedom. Emma said one time, Modern woman is no longer satisfied to be the beloved of a man. She looks for understanding, comradeship. She wants to be treated as a human being and not simply as an object for sexual gratification. And since man in many cases cannot offer her this, she turns to her sisters. Was she bisexual? This is a question that historians have. And I read a lot of her letters to her male lovers, and she definitely is very passionate about them. Here's just one little sampling from like a 1909 letter she wrote to Ben Reitman. You came to me like a stroke of lightning, kindling my soul and my body with mad passion as I had never known before. There's also some compelling evidence that she had some very passionate, close relationships with the women in her life. Was that automatically sexual? It's unclear. A woman by the name of Almeida Sperry wrote a bunch of love letters to Goldman that have survived to history. And 
Sperry was this anarchist activist. She was an advocate for sex ed in schools, and she was a former sex worker herself. Here's one excerpt from Sperry to Goldman. God, how I dream of you. You say that you would like to have me near you always if you were a man, or if you felt as I do. Dearest, I would not if I could. I would soon die. The thought of distance adds to my terrible pain, so pleasurable. I want no calm friendships. The thoughts of annihilation used to appeal to me. Today they do not. It seems like the only letters that survived are from Sperry to Goldman. So we kind of have to fill in the gaps from Sperry's responses to Emma's letters to discern the realities of their relationship. It's it's one of these, these tasks as a historian I found really challenging to unpack, and I don't have a clear answer for you. A 1912 letter from Sperry is in response to a question from Goldman about any past relationship Sperry had had with men. My own dear, my cherry blossom, my moonbeam shimmering on a dark pool at night, my mountain... So calm, so serene, my drop of dew hidden in the heart of a wild rose. I do not know whether I have loved deeply and passionately or not. If you mean if I ever loved a man, I will frankly say that I never saw a man. I have seen bipeds, who pose as men, but never saw a man. No, I have never deeply loved any man. I seem to exact too much. The men are lying pups, and all they are after is sex." So Goldman and Sperry spend a week in the country together in 1912. At another time, uh, Goldman is going to openly criticize some lesbians whose antagonism to the males, she wrote, is almost a disease. This is tricky. The letters clearly imply past sexual encounters between her and Goldman, but we don't know fully how much Goldman reciprocated those feelings. She certainly expressed admiration for Sperry, but without the same very intense enthusiasm that Sperry felt for her. All the evidence of a physical relationship from the two comes from Sperry, and these letters are intense and specific, but Sperry is just kind of intense in general, so the line between fantasy and reality are blurred, and I don't feel comfortable just declaring Goldman by. Tricky call, for sure. Here's Emma in an article from Mother Earth a couple months after the U.S. joins World War I in July 1917. Who is the real patriot? Or rather, what is the kind of patriotism that we represent? The kind of patriotism we represent is the kind of patriotism which loves America with open eyes. Our relation towards America is the same as the relation of a man who loves a woman, who is enchanted by her beauty and yet who cannot be blind to her defects. And so I wish to state here, in my own behalf, and in behalf of hundreds of thousands whom you decry and state to be anti-patriotic, that we love America. We love her beauty. We love her riches. We love her mountains and her forests. And above all, we love the people who have produced her wealth and riches, who have created all her beauty. We love the dreamers and the philosophers and the thinkers who are giving America liberty. But that must not make us blind to the social faults of America. That cannot make us deaf to the discords of America. That cannot compel us to be inarticulate to the terrible wrongs committed in the name of patriotism and in the name of the country. We simply insist, regardless of all protest to the contrary, that this war is not a war for democracy. If it were a war for the purpose of making democracy safe for the world, we would say that democracy must first be safe for America before it can be safe for the world. Hmm. 
That speaks to me as a history teacher in 2022 America. So the time when the U.S. is entering World War I in 1917 is also really the height of the first Red Scare. At this point in her career, cops show up to every lecture she gives, and that nickname of Red Emma is really going to stick. Now, Goldman is not a pacifist, but she embraces the anarchist idea that the state has no right to declare war and that World War I only serves the interests of capitalists. The U.S. government's going to pass the Selective Service Act, and a few weeks after, Goldman's going to give a speech to the No Conscription League. So they're going to have a draft, and Goldman's going to get really heavily involved in the anti-draft movement. Cops who were at the meeting make every man in the crowd show their conscription cards. 30 get detained, two were arrested. A New York Times headline from one of Goldman's anti-conscription speeches read, Anarchists awed by police clubs. Another was, Meeting of Reds Traps Slackers. I'm not going to give you a whole history of World War I here, but the U.S. entering World War I was certainly very controversial at the time, and it's not a simple battle between good and evil between the allied and central powers of World War I. And from Goldman's perspective, there's a lot of using World War I as an excuse to carry out serious repression of freedom of speech and other liberties in the U.S. at the time. In June of 1917, President Woodrow Wilson is going to sign the Espionage Act. You have a possibility of 20 years in prison and $10,000 fines for aiding the U.S.'s enemies, interfering with the draft, or encouraging disloyalty in the armed forces. Later, they're going to pass the Sedition Act, which effectively makes it a crime to criticize the government. Folks, this is one of the worst times for freedom of speech and censorship in American history. So Goldman and Sasha Berkman are going to get arrested on the same day. Honestly, I lost count how many times she was arrested at this point in her life, like at least 10 up till now. They're going to ban the publication of Mother Earth and then raid their offices and take their 8,000-person subscription list. Apparently, J. Edgar Hoover is going to confiscate and use Goldman's extensive library to educate himself on the supposed dangers of the radical left in America, and they're going to be tried for conspiring to violate the Selective Service Act. They plead not guilty. There's a $25,000 bail set for her and Berkman, and they wind up getting fined ten grand and sentenced to two years in federal prison. Goldman serves two years at the Missouri State Penitentiary. Berkman goes to prison too. To make it clear, they are sent to prison for giving speeches. One of my favorite excerpts from one of the 1917 speeches that gets her arrested and convicted is this. I merely tell you the more people you lock up, the more will be the idealists who will take their place. The more of the human voice you suppress, the greater and louder and the profounder will be the human voice. At present, it is a mere rumbling, but that rumbling is increasing in volume. It is growing in depth. It is spreading all over the country until it will be raised into a thunder. And people of America will rise and say, we want to be a democracy to be sure but we want the kind of democracy which means liberty and opportunity to every man and woman in America. Emma Goldman and Sasha Berkman are going to get deported to Russia in December of 1919. Right after she gets out of prison, J. Edgar Hoover personally works to have her claims to U.S. citizenship denied and argues in court that she should be deported. 
a memo from Hoover that I found, which comes right before she gets out of prison, says, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman are, beyond doubt, two of the most dangerous anarchists in this country, and if permitted to return to the community, will result in undue harm. Goldman obviously passionately and vehemently fights her deportation orders. Here's her statement at the federal hearing on her deportation. It's October of 1919. Every human being is entitled to hold any opinion that appeals to her or him without making herself or himself liable to persecution. Ever since I've been in this country, and I've lived here practically all my life, it has been dinned into my ears that under the institutions of this alleged democracy, one is entirely free to think and feel as he pleases. What becomes of this sacred guarantee of freedom of thought and conscience when persons are being persecuted and driven out for the very motives and purposes for which the pioneers who built up this country laid down their lives. Vain is the pretense that the safety of the country or the well-being of the American people demands these drastic Prussian methods. Nay, indeed, the people can only profit by a free discussion of the new ideas now germinating in the minds of thinking men and women in society. The free expression of the hopes and aspirations of a people is the greatest and only safety in a sane society. In truth, it is such free expression and discussion alone that can point the most beneficial path for human progress and development. But the object of deportations and of the anti-anarchist law, as of all similar repressive measures, is the very opposite. It is to stifle the voice of the people to muzzle every aspiration of labor. That is the real and terrible menace of the Star Chamber proceedings and of the tendency of exiling and banishing everyone who does not fit into the scheme of things our industrial lords are so eager to perpetuate. With all the power and intensity of my being, I protest against the conspiracy of imperialist capitalism against the life and the liberty of the American people. She's sent to Ellis Island for deportation she's put aboard the USAT Buford, which has 247 other radical aliens on board besides Goldman and Berkman. This boat's going to get nicknamed the Soviet Ark, or the Red Ark by the press. And this was supposed to be America's Christmas present to Lenin and Trotsky. There are 100 guards on board to watch over all 249 deportees. The New York Evening Journal said, just as the sailing of the ark that Noah built was a pledge for the preservation of the human race, so the sailing of the Soviet ark is a pledge for the preservation of America. The Saturday Evening Post put it this way. The Mayflower brought the first builders to this country. The Buford has taken away the first destroyers. Here's Emma describing conditions on the ship. For 28 days we were prisoners. Sentries at our cabin doors day and night. Sentries on deck during the hour we were daily permitted to breathe the fresh air. Our men comrades were cooped up in dark, damp quarters, wretchedly fed, all of us in complete ignorance of the direction we were to take. Yet our spirits were high. Russia, free. New Russia was before us. So they actually get dropped off in Finland. The U.S. had no diplomatic relations with Russia at the time, and then they get escorted across the border to the Soviet Union. Russians are pretty pumped to get people like Goldman and Berkman. They're globally famous. 
And at this time, the Russian Civil War is in full swing, and the country is in chaos. And so after the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks take over, the country just devolves into this terrifying civil war. Goldman and Berkman get welcomed by Lenin himself, and they travel around the country, and they realize real fast that Soviet Russia sucks. Historians discovered in 1989 notes in the Soviet archives from this meeting that Goldman and Berkman had with Lenin, and in it, they grill Lenin about the mistreatment of anarchists in the country and demand free speech rights and safety for all anarchists. Goldman said, I found reality in Russia grotesque, totally unlike the great ideal that had borne upon me the crest of high hope to the land of promise. I saw before me the Bolshevik state, formidable, crushing every constructive revolutionary effort, suppressing, debasing, and disintegrating everything. In her brief time in Russia, she's going to visit some prisons and give an interview with American newspapers where she openly criticizes the Bolshevik regime and says she wants to go back to the U.S. And Goldman and Berkman settle into what they think is kind of a safe job to allow them to tour the country without government interference. And they do this working for the Petrograd Museum of the Revolution, supposedly going around the country and helping document elements of the revolution. And it helps keep them safe to kind of tour the country and recognize what the heck is actually going on. And they wind up being able to leave after two years and they report to the world how crazy it is there. She later says, All my life I fed on the wonderful spirit of Russia, then to have found it prostrate, kicked into the gutter, attacked on all sides, enduring tortures Dante's Inferno did not contain, above all, stabbed in the heart by its own friends. And then, not to be able to help even a little bit, it was impossible. She writes this series of articles for the New York World. She's not back into the U.S., but the New York World publishes these articles, which get turned into a book titled My Disillusionment with Russia. It focuses on how terrible both the political and economic situation is there, and she's most angry at the suppression of free speech and party elitism and corruption. She said the triumph of the state meant the defeat of the revolution. It said these articles were denounced by American radicals of almost every camp, and so, you know, she she has all these hopes for okay, I want to be in the United States, that is my home, but if I'm going to go to Russia, at least they got this glorious revolution that's happening, maybe something good can come of it. Oh, wow, it's really freaking bad. And she continues to be a huge critic of the brutal Soviet dictatorship throughout the 20s and 30s. Goldman spends the next couple decades bouncing around England, France, Canada, and beyond. Except for a tiny tour in 1934, she's never allowed in the country that she loves most, the United States, again. Here's a little commentary from that 1934 tour, which is where all the audio excerpts that you've heard from today come from. It's her explaining her thoughts on the state of the world in the 30s. I consider Russia and America the most interesting countries in the world today. How about Hitler? I don't know him and don't want to. What is your opinion of Italy? Beautiful country minus Mussolini. In her late 60s, she gets heavily involved in supporting the left-wing anarchist anti-fascist movement in the Spanish Civil War, this massive war that preceded World War II. And it becomes this 
huge uplifting moment for her as she's supporting anarchism in action. There's actually a really powerful anarchist party that is going to help direct the left-wing forces fighting against Franco and his fascist regime in the Spanish Civil War. And although they lose that war, Goldman says it's going to have an even bigger influence on her than the Russian Civil War did. Emma Goldman's going to spend her final days in Canada. She would literally go to the U.S. border, look across, and cry. That's how much she missed the United States and longed to be part of the American story again. She dies of a stroke in Toronto in 1940, and she's going to be buried in Chicago's Waldheim Cemetery by the graves of the Haymarket Martyrs. Her casket is draped in the flag of the Spanish Anarchist Federation and Trade Union. Emma Goldman spent her life having this profound hope for change and then at each stage experienced this deep disillusionment with the state of affairs. But she never stopped. She kept discovering new causes and opportunities to keep the flame of change lit. Here's historian Stephen Cole. For birth control, there's a Margaret Sanger. For the down and out, there's a Dorothy Day. For free speech, there's an Emma Goldman. She puts the iron in people's souls. She puts fire into people, and that crosses generations. It was not simply for her generation. It echoes down through other generations so that people feel emboldened by her words and her actions decades and decades after she has left our company. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can now find a link to all my sources for every episode in the show notes. Special shout out for this one to the UC Berkeley Library for their Emma Goldman Papers collection and to PBS for their excellent materials as part of their American Experience series on Goldman. There's a link in the episode notes to financially support the show in whatever amount you can. It's greatly appreciated and it goes a long way towards helping me continue the show. You can always rate and subscribe or follow on whatever podcatcher you use to listen and follow at Daring Descent on Instagram. Let's not forget that ultimately history is a practice in empathy. I'm going to send you out with our final quote from Goldman. Liberty will not descend to a people. A people must raise themselves to liberty.